about the word and words of God and uh, laying that as the foundation really that um, gives a scriptural foundation for what we believe about the earth. Then I did, um, I don't know how exciting it was for you. Some of you liked it, some of you didn't. It was predictable who would like it and who wouldn't like it. Um, but uh, we showed you actual um, fragments and manuscripts, uh, some of the ancient ones dating back to the second century, the third century, the fourth century, and uh, showed some of the manuscript evidence that we have. And uh, so this week, I, I'm going to build from that. So we're, I'm going to talk about uh, I'm going to talk about some of what we talked about last time. That'll bring you back up to speed because it's been a couple weeks, right? Uh, since you heard me and we don't retain all these things. Uh, so I'm going to do that. And then I'm, gonna, I'm really excited about what I have to get into. But I better hurry up because I've been real chatty tonight. And, and uh, it's already <coughs> 20 after 7. I've used up a bunch of my time. All right. So uh, let's look at 2 Peter 3, verses 14 through 16. 2 Peter chapter 3. Verses 14 through 16, this will be a good starting point for us tonight. And we'll come back to this if I get to it near the end of the lesson tonight. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. And I want you to notice something relevant to our discussion. Now, maybe you remember this, that uh, what <clears throat> really what we're answering here is the claim made by Daniel Wallace. Daniel Wallace considered today to be the foremost uh, textual critic, Christian textual critic. And there are, there are two, there, there's a secular textual criticism and a, so a believing and an unbelieving textual criticism. And Daniel Wallace would be the leader of believing textual criticism. He's, he is a, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary and uh, he is himself a believer, um, but uh, I strongly, stridently disagree with his textual criticism and his approach to it. And in particular, a claim that he makes that there was not, he calls it an emerging canon consciousness <coughs> that in the early days of the New Testament church, there was not an awareness that they were handling scripture, that they were handling the word of God, and uh, that, that a full canon consciousness and awareness that they were handling the word of God didn't come until the third or fourth century. And so I, first of all, started with the textual evidence uh, to show how impossible it is to prove that theory based on the textual evidence that we have available to us. Now I want to, tonight, show you what the Bible says about this. Because, honestly, what the Bible says matters. In fact, we ought to shape and understand history, archaeology, discovery in terms of the Bible. The Bible should guide the discussion. The Bible should guide the examination and not the other <coughs> way around. And this is where we always get messed up. When, and, and part of it comes from a desire that we have to, <clears throat> um, 
to seem like a, it, the, the word the word was escaping. Um, it it was there, and then it went away. Um, but there's a desire that we have, especially Christians, um, to uh, appear to be uh, respectable. It's it's the desire for academic respectability. And in order to be academically respectable, you cannot make the Bible the ultimate authority and you cannot interpret what you're seeing and what you're discovering, what you're finding in a scientific examination. You can't let what the Bible says dictate anything. You have to follow the facts wherever they may lead. And so it always has to be approached as a neutral science. And that's my objection to Daniel Wallace, my objection to the modern day textual criticism is that it approaches textual criticism as a neutral science. That we just take all these fragments and all these scraps and all these codexes and so on and we just go wherever the facts lead us. We follow the trail, and but but there's no examination of what Scripture teaches to tell us what we should expect. So really, tonight is much more important. I think last week I wanted to introduce you to the text, uh, the manuscript tradition, and all the various. You know, like I said, it's approaching six thousand manuscripts that have been discovered at this point. Uh, it's in that vicinity uh, now of fragments and so on that have been discovered. And so we have a, a massive, massive amount of manuscript evidence. I don't deny that, and I don't deny that that's valuable. It's very valuable, very valuable. Some manuscripts, understand, are less than 50 years after the, the original source. That's incredible. When you consider some of the classic works of literature uh, that are available to us today, the writings of Plato and Homer and so on, and realize that uh, the, the copies of their writings that we have available today are sometimes hundreds of years after it was written that that's the earliest manuscript evidence we have for it. With the Bible, we have manuscript evidence that is almost as old as some of the books themselves that have been written in the Bible, in the, in the New Testament canon. That's, a, that's amazing, that's incredible. Uh, and it gives us added confidence in the authenticity and authority of the Word of God, absolutely. But still, in order to interpret the data, in order to interpret what we're seeing when we look at these manuscripts, we have to have a firm handle on what the Word of God teaches. All right, so 2 Peter 3. Here I'm ranting again. Um, 2 Peter 3, verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless, and account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. 
even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, <coughs> speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we have your word as our guide, our instructor. I pray that you'd help us that we would believe your word and receive it gladly, and that it would shape our minds and shape our opinions and shape uh, our commitments. And Lord, that we would be committed to you and to your word. I pray that you'd help us with these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is what uh, Daniel Wallace um, said these writings he said were authoritative but it wasn't immediately thought of as the New Testament as such no but they did recognize that this was a letter from Paul we know that he's an apostle and we recognize that his authority is very high but is it on the level of the Old Testament prophets it took some time for them to embrace this so this canon consciousness is something that slowly emerged and we know that the Gospels were accepted as Scripture earlier on, probably before the end of the first century. Paul's letters were accepted as authoritative and later as Scripture. By the end of the second century, there were about 21 books that were recognized as authoritative and valid for us in worship services. So the consciousness emergence lasted for about three centuries. As soon as people begin to think of it as Scripture, they begin to be more careful uh, in copying. And yet there was a new kind of textual variant precisely because they now recognized it as scripture. Right? <clears throat> so this is Wallace's claim that prior to this canon consciousness, they knew that it was an important letter, but they didn't treat it like it was scripture. So there were perilous mistakes. Then, after they realized it was canon, like there was this golden dawning, I guess, um, and when the, you know, like the light came on and the third century Christians realized that, oh, this is the Bible, we better be careful. Then, he says, there was a new kind of scribal error that crept in because scribes were attempting to harmonize and correct certain things. Now, uh, let me just say, first of all, that that is speculation. That is not based on anything that you see in the text itself, in the, text, the, the uh, manuscripts themselves. There's nothing in the manuscripts that would tell you that at all. Uh, now, certainly, uh, some of the earliest and oldest manuscripts are downright shabby, as we pointed out to you, Sinaiticus, as an example uh, of that. But <clears throat> there was, uh, there's not an, anything that would indicate what he is saying. Wallace guesses that the cause of early textual variants had more to do with carelessness because New Testament believers didn't realize they were handling scripture. And he believes that after the church declared the New Testament canon, then errors of piety began to creep into the text 
because scribes and copyists tried to harmonize the text, assuming that the last scribe didn't get it quite right. So in our previous lesson, we demonstrated the impossibility of proving this from the manuscript tradition. To recap, Wallace is especially speaking of the Pauline epistles and the general epistles, uh, Peter, James, John, Jude. Um, we looked at the manuscript evidence from the first three centuries that would be significant enough to test Wallace's theory. And we saw that there's only one significant manuscript from the second century that we could use for an examination. That manuscript is P46, which includes most of Paul's epistles in about 86 leaves. So we have one, one second century manuscript. There are um, a, a couple dozen, I think, um, fragments. But with the fragments, it's really impossible uh, to tell because you don't have extended uh, <coughs> writing in there. So we have one second century manuscript that would give us a taste of the way the epistles of Paul were handled in the time frame that Wallace is referring to. And that's simply not enough of a sample size to be able to say that with authority. That's one manuscript that survived from that time. Interestingly, textual critics will use P46 to argue or to prove that the Textus Receptus is hopelessly corrupt. Isn't that interesting? <coughs> so they claim, and Wallace's claim is that P46 and the manuscripts from that time show errors of carelessness, all right? But they also show the TR to be hopelessly corrupt. That's what we call having it both ways, right there. The three manuscripts from the third century that are more than a single fragment, only one is significant enough to examine if we want to test Wallace's theory. Um, GA0189 is one unctual leaf of Acts and one of the Catholic epistles. GA0220 is one unctual leaf of Paul at Romans 4, verses 23, through chapter 5, verse 3, and then on the back side, chapter 5, verse 8 through 13. So not, again, not much on that fragment. P72 is 95 leaves of Acts and the general epistles or the Catholic epistles. It's the earliest known manuscript of the epistles of Jude and 1st and 2nd Peter, Apart from P78, which is a fragment of June. So we have one second century manuscript of the epistles of Paul <coughs> that we can examine. And we have one third century manuscript of the general epistles that we can examine. That's what we have. All right? So there's not even overlap between the two where we could compare them to each other to test that theory. The way textual scholars use these manuscripts, they, it's, it's funny because they will claim that they make lots of careless mistakes, but then they will also claim that those are the standard. All right, now you can't, 
That's what I'm saying. You can't have it both ways like that. If they show a lot of careless errors, I have to ask by what standard? What are you comparing it to to say there are careless errors in it? How are you determining that? And then if you believe that they have lots of careless errors, then how can you claim that the TR is hopelessly corrupt because it doesn't match up to them? Either, either they have careless errors, in which case they're not reliable, or else they are the standard, one or the other, but it can't be both. <clears throat> so I would argue that corrupt manuscripts should not be used as the standard of anything. From the 4th century, then, we have two complete manuscripts that we can examine, Codex Vaticanus and Codex, Codex Sinaiticus. We pointed out a few relevant points about these two manuscripts. First of all, Vaticanus was stored at the Vatican Library since at least 1475. Uh, Wallace speculates that it may have been kept in Constantinople prior to that, but that, that opinion doesn't seem to be supported, and there's not really agreement even among textual scholars on that. Wallace considers it to be the most important document of the Bible, but Dean uh, John Bregan had this to say about it. Codex B, Vaticanus, comes to us without a history, without recommendation of any kind, except that of its antiquity. It bears traces of careless transcription in every page. The mistakes which the original transcriber made are of perpetual recurrence. Despite its availability, <coughs> pointed out to you that Erasmus, when he wrote um, his edition of the Greek New Testament, did not make use of Vaticanus. It's not that he didn't know about Vaticanus, and it's not that he could not visit the Vatican Library, who was a Roman Catholic priest. Erasmus had been to the Vatican already. So it's evident that Erasmus did not consider Vaticanus to be authoritative. <clears throat> the only thing that Erasmus did with Vaticanus as I understand it, is that he uh, sent a letter to a friend of his who worked at the Vatican Library <coughs> because in, in the first two editions of Erasmus's Greek New Testament, he did not include the Joannine comma, the First uh, John 5, it's a section in between First John 5, 7 and First John 5, 8. Uh, that is uh, uh, debated whether it belongs in the New Testament or not. There are three that bear record uh, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Um, that's uh, debated, textual scholars debate its authenticity. Erasmus did not include that passage in his Greek New Testament, the first two editions of it, I believe maybe even the first three. There was such an outrage, an outcry uh, among believers that it was left out. And uh, Erasmus privately, quietly sent a letter to the Vatican Library and asked his friend if he would look to see if that was included in Vaticanus. It was not. So Erasmus considered it also to be inauthentic. 
um, and said that he would then include it in his uh, Greek New Testament if someone would prove to him that it belonged there. Um, and then someone sent him uh, a copy, uh, a manuscript that included it, and so he put it in. And uh, of course, there's a lot of debate about that, whether or not it should have been put in or not. But all the TRs um, after that have included the Joannine comma. James Snap has documented more than 120 errors in singular readings. A singular reading is a reading that appears only in that copy, in that manuscript. So 120 singular readings that are found only in Vaticanus. 120 of these in Matthew, Mark, and Luke alone. And Snap did not examine the entirety of these books to come up with that number. That's what he found in a, just a cursory examination. So it's fair to say that Vaticanus is a low-quality manuscript of the Bible. Tischendorf discovered Codex Sinaiticus at St. Catherine's Monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai in May of 1844. By the way, most of the manuscripts, these ancient manuscripts, have been found in the 18 or 1900s, and in fact, I would say that the vast majority of them have been found in the 1900s. So that what that means is that a large number of these manuscripts uh, fell out of use. They were not in use by believers for many, many years. <clears throat> so, some have claimed falsely that Sinaiticus was rescued from the trash can, as I explained to you, um, most likely, I mean, that's according to Tischendorf's own testimony, uh, but most likely uh, it was a copy of a manuscript that was in use in uh, that, in St. Catherine's uh, convent, and uh, that the pages were worn enough that they had copied it somewhere else, and they were discarding just those copies. It was a small percentage of the total of Sinaiticus anyway, and so I think it's, really that's not the issue um, with Sinaiticus. The bigger issue is not with what they were doing with Sinaiticus, but what was done to Sinaiticus uh, over the years. The quality of this manuscript is terrible, really. Tischendorf himself said that on nearly every page of the manuscript there are corrections and revisions done by 10 different people. He counted 14,800 alterations and corrections in the manuscript. 14,800. That's a lot. The New Testament, <clears throat> I'm quoting here, the New Testament is extremely unreliable on many occasions 10, 20, 30, 40 words are dropped. Letters, words, even whole sentences are frequently written twice over or begun and immediately canceled. That gross blunder, whereby a clause is omitted because it happens to end in the same word as the clause preceding, occurs no less than 115 times in the New Testament. The official website dedicated to Codex Sinaiticus 
says this, no other early manuscript of the Christian Bible has been so extensively corrected. A glance at the transcription will show just how common these corrections are. They're especially frequent in the Septuagint portion. They range in date from those made by the original scribes in the fourth century to ones made in the 12th century. They range from the alteration of a single letter to the insertion of whole sentences. Dean Vergon compared the readings between Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. He also checked these manuscripts for particular readings or readings that are found only in that manuscript and nowhere else. In the Gospels alone, Vaticanus has 197 particular readings, while Sinaiticus has 443. A particular reading signifies one that is most definitely false. Manuscripts repeatedly proven to have incorrect readings lose respectability. Thus, manuscripts boasting significant numbers of particular readings cannot be relied upon. According to Herman Hosker, there are, without counting errors of ioticism, 3,036 textual variations between Sinaiticus and Vaticanus in the text of the Gospels alone. Okay, 3,000 variations in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John alone between Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Assuming that the same ratio of variance persists in the rest of the New Testament and doing the math, that's uh, about 3,034 3,434 additional variants for a total of about 6,470 variants between them. There are 7,956 verses in the New Testament. That's an average of 0.81, so 81% variant between verses between Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. There's that much difference between them. Roughly four out of every five verses in one manuscript disagrees in at least one place in the other. That's not reliable, folks. Dean Bergon said it is, in fact, easier to find two consecutive verses in which these two manuscripts differ the one from the other than two consecutive verses in which they entirely agree. Yet, textual criticism, modern-day textual criticism, relies almost exclusively on Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. And in fact, as I pointed out to you, the, each new edition of the Nestle Online <coughs> text, which is the modern-day critical text, each one adopts more and more of Sinaiticus or Vaticanus readings, particular Sinaiticus. So the textual evidence, and this is the point I made to you last time, the textual evidence does not support Daniel Wallace's assertion that canon consciousness didn't begin to emerge until the third or fourth centuries. If anything, textual criticism points to the early corruption of the Alexandrian text, that is, the texts that were found in Alexandria, Egypt. We don't have any textual evidence from any region prior to the 4th century. This fact is one of the main arguments used by textual critics for the superiority of the Alexandrian text. It is very evident that 
There were texts in use in the Greek and Roman Empire prior to the fourth century. The Byzantine text certainly came from somewhere. In fact, um, the Vaticanus is actually considered to be a Byzantine text. The vast majority of manuscripts that we have, according to Robinson Pierpoint, 90% of the manuscripts that we have are Byzantine. All right, so uh, there's Alexandrian, uh, which is the most ancient, and Byzantine, which is the most often, the majority text, is the Byzantine text. Jordan Fee suggests that John Chrysostom is the earliest church father to witness, not to give witness to a Byzantine-type text. John Chrysostom lived from 340 to 407. Others have claimed that Basil the Great predates Chrysostom, and he also um, testifies to a Byzantine text. I would argue that probably, I mean, we can just assume, I mean, it, well, we're going to see this from Scripture, that believing believers and churches were co faithfully copying and passing around the manuscripts of Scripture so that um, the original may have been sent to them, but the copies were immediately made and sent to the other churches. But you have to remember a couple things. <coughs> First of all, even um, the Alexandrian texts, which were found in one of the places in the world that is providentially suited to um, preserve manuscripts. It's a very dry climate, um, and there was a lot of document keeping in that area. Uh, so it's not surprising there. But also, all of these ancient fragments show excessive wear. The ones, you, you would think that the, the more complete manuscripts that are still available today must not have been used very much in their day. You would assume that. So when we come to the um, Greek and Roman empires, where really that is where the early New Testament church uh, found its footing, where God launched the New Testament church, that the manuscripts <coughs> were used excessively there. So it's not surprising that there are not many or any that, that survived. In addition to that, don't forget about the excessive persecution that Christians suffered in the early centuries of the New Testament church. And remember that when the emperors persecuted the church, they didn't simply persecute the church. They sought, actively sought, to destroy the Bible itself. So those two things have to be factored in. But we also, it's indisputable that the Alexandrian text differs significantly from the Byzantine text. And in fact, the Byzantine manuscripts underlie the TR. So the Textus Receptus um, really grew out of the Byzantine text uh, there. It, it, the, the connection, even though there are variants and differences, the connection is very clear and obvious. 
We'll revisit that a little bit later, but for now I'll only say that the uh, Alexandrian text type certainly does show a lot of corruption in the manuscripts that have survived. But that doesn't prove that early Christians didn't know that they were handling scripture at all. Not at all. For one thing, again, the Alexandrian family of texts is found in Alexandria, Egypt, where far removed from the early New Testament church, and <clears throat> according to the early church fathers, there was much corruption creeping into the church. It was a breeding ground for heresy and so on. <clears throat> so, the only thing really that the Alexandrian text proves is that there were significant problems with Alexandrian texts. There, are, there really is not a good reason to rely on the Alexandrian text or to hold it up as a standard of what the Word of God ought to be. Now I want to answer Wallace's claim of a slowly emerging canon consciousness. I want to answer it from Scripture itself. I want to look at what the Bible actually says about its own canonicity. The Bible tells us that the churches accepted the books of the New Testament as Scripture immediately. That there was not a, a slow emergence of canon consciousness. So in other words, it didn't slowly dawn on... I mean, really, for Wallace's theory to be true, it would mean that it would not, it would be a, a couple centuries after the apostles were all dead before New Testament believers understood that they had the Bible. That doesn't compute at all. It doesn't fit what, what Scripture says at all. <clears throat> so let's look at the scriptural evidence. Um, this really, I, I, can't, I uh, developed this lesson from Norman Geisler and William Nix's book, From God to Us, How We Got Our Bible. Uh, they have a really wonderful section on this particular issue. I thought it was excellent, and I'm going to present it to you now. They begin by pointing out the challenges to the canon of Scripture itself. I want you just to think about this, because it's a marvelous thing. Uh, the, the, the New Testament text was uh, written from a broad geographical region that spanned from Jerusalem to Rome. I mean, that's a, in a day where travel was mainly on foot or by ship, to have that big of a geographical span, really from the edges of the Roman Empire, it's an incredible, incredible what the early church did. The letters were carried in many directions sometimes carried to individuals such as Gaius and Philemon, sometimes carried to regions such as Galatia, to churches in Eastern Asia um, such as 1 Peter, to churches in Western Asia such as the book of Revelation, and as far away as Europe the book of Romans. <laughs> Communication was difficult. There were no printing presses, so everything had to be hand copied. 
And the letters were delivered by messengers in person. And this is all significant in what God did with us. The difficulties were compounded by false teachers and false apostles who claimed to be giving an account of the gospel. Now we know that this was happening because of what the Bible says. And I want you to follow along with me. If you're taking notes, just write down these references. In Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Luke says this, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. Okay, so Luke is acknowledging that there are many people who are claiming to tell the story of Jesus. And that this is the motivation for him to write a true account. Now remember that Luke got his account from Paul, his gospel, from Paul, but also um, from personally interviewing. Uh, it seems evident to me that Luke personally visited Mary, the Virgin Mary, well, not the Virgin Mary, but Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, she was not a virgin when Luke visited her, but um, went and visited Mary, uh, Jesus' mother Mary and got a first-hand account from her. So Luke says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set, in order, set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. All right, so this is what Luke is doing here. He's motivated by the fact that there are many people claiming to tell the story of Christ in his life. And he's Writing this so that, he says, you can know the certainty of these things. He wants them to be sure about the life of Christ. Now that means that by 60 AD, now think about that, 60 AD, Jesus died on the cross somewhere after 30 AD. So less than 30 years after Christ ascended to heaven, inaccuracies were being taught and promoted among believers. Paul the Apostle begged the Thessalonians to be cautious about those who claimed to speak for Jesus Christ. Apparently there were those in, in that day already, in the, life of, in the lifetime of the Apostle Paul, there were those who were claiming that the day of the Lord had already come. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So this is what Paul is saying. He, again, there's a recognition in this passage that there are people, unscrupulous people, who are 
portraying themselves as speaking apostolically with authority and sending out letters to believers. So Paul says to them <clears throat> that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us. Just because they say that they're writing on our behalf. He is warning believers to be careful about what they accept as scripture. Okay, now that's significant. That tells you that there was a great carefulness because of the teaching of the apostles, a great carefulness among the believers about what they received as scripture and what they did not receive as scripture. Paul needed to take steps to certify that his epistles were authentic, which included, <coughs> now these are things that Paul did to certify that the letter was authentic. He signed it with his own hand. He told them that he was signing it with his own hand. And he designated the messenger that he commissioned to deliver that letter to the churches. I'll give you one example, 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 17. <coughs> the salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle. So this is what Paul is saying. I sign my own letters so that you will know that this is authentic. This is the word of God. We know that false claims were made about what Jesus said and what Jesus did so that the apostles, such as the apostle John, needed to come back and correct the record. John chapter 21, verse 23. Then went the saying abroad among the brethren that the disciple, that that disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, he shall not die, but if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? This is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. This is John writing and saying, listen, you've heard rumors about what took place in the upper room. And you've been told that Jesus said I would never die. Now is that important for John to correct that record? That misstatement? Absolutely. Do you know why? Because John the Apostle is dead. He's dead now. He died. Imagine <coughs> If believers thought that Jesus said John would never die, and then he died, how that would go. So John recognizes that these things, these rumors that get spread around, and remember, so much information was passed word by word of mouth. And so John sees it as a significant thing that he correct the record here. 
John also gave this word of instruction to future disciples in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. Beloved, he said, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. This is an early problem, an early challenge to the canon of Scripture. It's no surprise. Satan knows that if he can undermine confidence in the Word of God, that he has then a handle, a, a wedge, that he can drive in the Christian faith. So it was an immediate concern of Satan's to try to undermine confidence in the authority of the Word of God. But Jesus in the upper room had made a promise to the disciples about the Holy Spirit's role in the um, giving of, and, and in fact, Jesus told his disciples that you're going to tell everyone what happened, everything you saw in my life. And the disciples are overwhelmed by that. Like, there are so many things. How can we remember? And Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will bring to mind whatever, whatever I've said to you so that you can declare it. So this is, again, this is what God is promising. Jesus Christ was making provision <laughs> for his word from the very beginning. And the apostles aren't just reacting to a problem, but they know that there, there is going to be a problem, there are going to be challenges, and it is absolutely necessary that we instruct God's churches and God's people how so that they're careful what they accept as scripture. So there's not a carelessness. There's not just, oh yeah, another letter. Got one from Thomas the other day. <clears throat> and this one from Paul. You know, we'll just read them all and see which one survives, I guess. Uh, you know, that they weren't handling them that way. From the start, believers had to be careful about what they considered to be a word from God, what they accepted, what they rejected. Geisler and Nick say this. There's every indication that within the first century church, there was a selecting process at work. Every alleged word about Christ, whether oral or written, was subjected to authoritative apostolic teaching. If word or work could not be verified by those who were eyewitnesses, it was rejected. The apostles insisted on apostolic authority for any teaching or any written word. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon in our hands have handled in the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So John is, again, asserting his apostolic authority to declare what he had himself <coughs> witnessed, what he was, in fact, a witness of, an authoritative witness from God. And John opens his epistle by declaring that. 
Listen to Ephesians 2, verse 19. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So again, in that, Paul is pointing to apostolic authority for the word of God. That the authentic word is has apostolic authority. Ephesians 4, verse 8 and verse 11, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Paul there is pointing to what are the authorities of the church, the apostles and prophets. Of course, the prophets are a reference to the Old Testament and the apostles to the New Testament. So Paul is pointing to that as the mark of the authentic word of God. 2 Peter 1, verse 16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So again, Peter is making the same exact claim as Paul made and as um, John made. Yeah, I'm going to play. John made it, Paul made it, Peter made it. And that is that we witnessed it ourselves. So, so this is the thing. In the time of the early New Testament church, any claim made about Jesus needed to be verified by the apostles because they were the witnesses. They saw it themselves. And they had a special promise from Jesus himself. He gave them in the upper room that the Holy Spirit would remind them of what they had witnessed, of what they had seen. So the apostles gave the authoritative accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. We have every reason to believe that the early church was cautious about what they accepted as scripture and that they tested everything by apostolic authority. All right, so again, we're examining the notion that uh, put forth by Daniel Wallace, uh, the, the notion, the theory of an emerging canon consciousness, and we're saying no. The believers in the early New Testament church were instructed how to tell Scripture from non-Scripture, and that they were careful to not to embrace as scripture what did not have apostolic authority. They were instructed to look for that apostolic authority, which tells you that they would have known from the beginning that this is scripture. Now there's more evidence of that even than what I got to tonight. And uh, one of the things uh, is the verse we started with in 2 Peter 3, where Peter refers to, it's evident that Peter had copies <coughs> of the epistles of Paul, that he had read those, and he references them as having scriptural authority. But we'll come to that. Uh, it's going to be a couple more weeks uh, before we get to